While the appetite for poetry in many modern cultures has dwindled into antiquity, poetry remains at the core of Iranian life and governments. The people of Iran encounter poetry every day in newspapers, classrooms, religious sermons, political broadcasts, advertising billboards, television, and radio, as well as in the home. Poetry is so embedded within Iran's ruling structures and political thought that it has become almost impossible to separate it from the rhetoric of power over the past four decades. Both leaders of the Islamic Republic, Ruhollah Khomeini and Ali Khamenei, are poets in their own right. Much is yet to be written about the influence of poetry in the romanticization of political thought in Iran, as has been explored in other cultures such as Soviet Russia, Franco's Spain, Castro's Cuba, or Italy under Mussolini where the role of the poet tyrant has been so critically investigated. Welcome to Middle East Center Book Talk, the Oxford podcast on new books about the Middle East. These are some of the books written by members of our community or the books our community are talking about. My name is Suzanne Olszewska and I teach the social anthropology of the Middle East, particularly Iran, with a particular interest in literary production. My guest is Fatima Shams, Assistant Professor of Modern Persian Literature at the University of Pennsylvania. Fatima earned her DPhil in Oriental Studies at Oxford under the supervision of Homol Kotuzian and Edmund Herzig in 2016. She then taught Persian Language and Literature at the University of Oxford, SOAS and the Quarteau Institute of Art before joining the University of Pennsylvania. She is herself an award-winning poet who has published three collections of poetry in Persian and English. From May 2021 until July 2022, Fatima will be a Humboldt Fellow and an EU ME affiliate residing in Berlin, embarking on her second book project on imprisonment, exile, and precarious modes of writing in Persian tradition. Her much-anticipated book, A Revolution in Rhyme, Poetic Co-Option Under the Islamic Republic, was published in 2020 by Oxford University Press as part of the Oxford Oriental Monograph series. It's unique and highly original in addressing the output of the post-revolutionary Iranian poets, whom she calls official poets, because they've been supported in various ways by the state, but who until now have been dismissed as aesthetically unimportant and largely neglected outside of Iran. Fatima, welcome to Book Talk, and welcome back to the Middle East Center community. Can you tell us about the role that the Oxford intellectual media played in the writing of this book? Hi, Susanna. It's a pleasure and honor to be here and in conversation with you, and also to be back to the Middle East Center and St. Anthony's College, which was my first college when I first arrived in Oxford. So those were the good old days. You know, if I want to start answering your question about how Oxford milieu and intellectual community shaped my scholarship and also who I am today as a scholar, I should really start with the Clarendon Fund and the fact that it gave me the opportunity to pursue a PhD in the first place. But more methodically, if I want to highlight some of the most important takeaways from Oxford time for me was basically to rethink the relationship between the old and new, I would say, that in order to make sense of the new we always have to go back to the past and we don't have to completely break from the past in order to 
create something new. I think that was something that was extremely important and inspiring to me, you know, came out of many conversations with my mentors, Homo Katuzian and Edmund Terzik, and also my friends, including yourself. Another thing that I think was very important was for me, especially to come to realize the importance and significance of history and historical knowledge. I always had this, I don't know if it's a joke, but I always used to tell my friends that it's impossible to go to Oxford to study humanities and not become a historian. At some point, you realize that you are a historian before you are a literary critic or you are, a, and you are an anthropologist or sociologist. You really, like any, anything in humanities goes back to history and you have to go back to the past in order to shape your thoughts and your ideas. And, you know, the interpretation of this past also, I would say, was something that, you know, the sort of the ways in which you look at this past and try to make sense of it. And, of course, the privilege of working with wonderful scholars, meeting the people that you simply don't get to meet in other contexts. Oxford is really unique in that sense. And the last thing I would say, the beautiful libraries in which you could just hide for hours every day and get inspired by the beautiful architecture and the old books, you know, that always kept me thinking and rethinking and writing and rewriting. So I would say that the physicality of the place itself was also very inspiring and special. Well, it's absolutely wonderful to be able to welcome you back virtually, and it's an honor to have this conversation with you. So we've just passed the 42nd anniversary of the Islamic Revolution in Iran. But as you make clear in the introduction of your book, your book is the first to address this vast body of poetry that's been produced under various forms of state sponsorship in the Islamic Republic, as well as the first to focus on the close relationship between poetry and power through these mechanisms. Why do you think it's taken so long for someone to try to fill this gap? Yeah, that's a, that's a very important and wonderful question. I actually elaborate on this in the introduction of the book as well, that one of the reasons for this gap, I think, has been the lack of contact with the post-revolutionary Iran by those scholars whose work actually has shaped and sort of defined the field outside Iran. You know, extensive purges and forceful and voluntary immigrations that happened right after, the, especially the first decade after the revolution, caused many of these scholars to leave home and sort of lose contact with Iran and simply not being able to be physically present there. And this had a really important impact on the production of the scholarship outside Iran. This is not to say that nobody has worked on post-revolutionary literature. And I make it very clear in the book that we have, in fact, invaluable body of research on post-revolutionary prose and even poetry. But, you know, they mostly have been focusing on or focused on those authors and poets who held a very critical approach against the state or have been simply neutral and independent. And in other words, the emphasis have been always on the resistance and the defiance rather than conformity and ideology. And I try to break this binary and complicate it in the book by showing that even those who adhere to a certain ideology, being the ideology of the state, questioned it at some point. And it's not as uh, sort of black and white that we imagine. 
So this new generation of scholars who grew up in Iran and were educated under the Islamic Republic, including myself, we have a different experience and view of how the system really works. You know, we, I mean, I personally was exposed to poetry since very young age, both at home and at school. And there was always this divide between the school textbooks and what I found in my mother's underground library that had offset publications of the pre-revolutionary period. And then, you know, the overground library that had different kinds of books. So being exposed to all these different dimensions of Persian poetry, I suppose, was extremely important since very young age. And soon I found myself in the poetry circles of Mashhad, which is one of the most thriving cities as far as poetry is concerned. And then later on, when I entered Tehran University, I became more aware of this extensive purges that happened in the past and were happening at that time. And also the state-sponsored book industry, really, that constantly tried to weave a different literary history, different canonization and recanonization of poetry. And then I left Iran and I started working on this project. One of the things that came to my attention was that this particular phenomenon, this you know, book-making industry and sort of canonization and recanonization of poetry has been completely dismissed and nobody has really picked up on it. There were you know, articles and book chapters here and there, but none of them really tried to contextualize this particular phenomenon, especially in conversation with the past literary tradition that was also part of my interest. Yeah, just to pick up on that, I mean, why? what do you think accounts for the, not so much the neglect, because you mentioned that, but the fact that the aesthetic aspects of this official poetry seem to have been downright distasteful to so many critics outside Iran. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's a very important question to address. I try to address this in the book as well, that, you know, there is this tendency among the critics, especially those outside Iran, and, and also, you know, independent critics inside Iran, that there is this tendency for uh, aesthetics that I would call high literature, that simply ignoring the fact that poetry and literature has also other functions in the society. I, I studied sociology at Tehran University, and I think that sociological batch background really helped me to rethink the relationship between poetry and, and society. And for me, the fact that poetry could be also an art of persuasion, dissemination of ideology, brainwashing, training a new revolutionary generation, all of this was also very important. And, you know, once you, once you put those in priority the aesthetic dimension finds a different meaning. Why is it distasteful to many critics? I think as a result of that, anything that is ideologically charged and also considered as too political, political and ideological for the taste of the scholars has been dismissed. And then this is a sloganeering aspect of poetry, uh, that, you know, poetry is, share is a shuare, or the poetry is a slogan, uh, or vice versa. And as, as soon as it's becoming a tool for mass mobilization, which literally became that during the war with Iraq, then it's, you know, it's not worth our time and our attention. For me, in fact, this very aspect of revolutionary or uh, what I call Islamic Republican poetry was very, very interesting. 
how rhythm and rhyme actually were used in the political sphere. Another reason I think for their dismissal is their ties, their very close ties with the state. I think it played a very important role in their othering. You know, there is a political divide, whether we, we like it or not, between the scholars outside Iran, those working in humanities and for the most part, and, you know, the Islamic Republic. So whoever works for the government, uh, with the government, especially if they're lit, you know, literary people, they're just simply considered as bad poets by default. Well, this is simply not true. And, you know, I tried in the book to, uh, to complicate this approach and that many of them, in fact, knew the poetic tradition pretty well. We might not like the way they write and, you know, we might not agree with their ideology, but that doesn't mean that they are completely illiterate or unaware of, you know, this tradition. In fact, they are deeply aware of it and that's why they were capable of co-opting it so well. Which is something that I think the contribution of this book to the field is really to show that how this co-option has taken place. Another thing, I think there is this, demo, again, which has to do with what I already said, this demoralizing approach to not just the revolution and the Islamic Republic, but also Islam to some extent, I would say. I try to, you know, in the book to show that Islam really means different things to all these poets. I start the book with an ode by a poet who was then later on after the revolution exiled, persecuted and exiled by the Islamic Republic. This poet is one of the first pioneering voices of this very trend that later on was promoted to officialdom after the revolution, Nehmet Azar. And I think complicating this binary, it was, which was really something that I was hoping to do in the book, we challenged this pigeonholing approach of calling these people Islamist, people who, you know, if you look at what has been already produced, these poets have been constantly called Islamist poets. I think there is a difference between Islamist and Islamic Republican. And I think that's what I was trying to do in the book. And the fact that many of these poets were allies uh, with the censors and with the Islamic Republic itself and played a role in the system and their poetry uh, for this reason doesn't deserve attention. I think, I think this is something that had to be addressed and challenged. And I tried to do that in the book. Yeah, I think, I mean, that was one of the things I really appreciated about your book and that I found so striking that you demonstrated so carefully that contrary to what we might assume, there was such incredible diversity, both in aesthetic and in ideological terms, among the state-sponsored poets, the Islamic Republican or official poets that you describe. And so in this way, you refute earlier episodic approaches to Persian literary history, which tended to group poets according to their time period, and you argue very pointedly that poetry neither started nor stopped in 1979. So what lessons do you think that literary critics and historians should take away from your book regarding the most useful ways to classify poets? Uh, one thing I forgot to mention in response to your previous question, which I think is also relevant to what you just asked, is that one thing I really learned in, during my time in Oxford, and this was thanks to my supervisor, Edmund Herzig, was that he really pushed me to go for reading texts and sources about Bolshevik Russia and the Bolshevik Revolution. And although this work is not in any way a comparative study, I think 
there is, you know, I have used different examples, but mostly the, uh, the example of Russia to show that Iran is really not the first and is not going to be the last country that poetry was uh, in this country was tied with the revolution and poets were tied with the revolution. And also the complicated process of becoming part of the revolutionary sort of movement and then later on becoming disillusioned by it. This is something that happened in the case of Bolshevik Russia. And I, I tried to address this in the book. I'm hoping that this opens the field really for further inquiries and, and research by other scholars also, that to look for the parallels and try to put Iran on the map rather than just looking at, at Iran as a as this isolated place that you know just falls into the area of studies and there's nothing really in common between this and other examples as far as poetry is concerned and revolution and ideology is concerned. Another thing that I was hoping to, you know, going back to your question about the episodic approach is that I try to, to show that basically the relationship with the poetic tradition is something that we should also look at, that each poet has his or her own way of connecting with the past and, you know, in today's Iran, even the government has its own take on this poetic tradition. We have, after the revolution, we have uh, this new wave of interpreters and critics who are aligned by the state and they're giving their own interpretation of Hafez, for example, Mutazda Mutahari's and, you know, book on Tafsir Hafez with uh, uh, his interpretation of Hafez is one of them. And... I chose the term co-option for this particular reason to show that there are ways, there are always ways of connecting between the past and the present, even when there is a revolutionary ideology and government in place, even if they try to cut this relationship with the past, uh, they're unable to do that because they're constantly themselves, they're constantly going back to this past and try to have a selective approach to this past. And also in terms of the episodic approach, as I mentioned in response to one of your questions, the fact that no matter what ideology these poets adhere to, they are always in conversation with other competing trends, including the leftist poetic jargon of the 1970s. I show this in detail in one of the chapters of the book when I talk about how this mystic, poetic, militant approach was co-opted. In fact, partly by going back to the mystical tradition and mystical poetry, and partly by going back to the guerrilla poetry of the 70s. And by putting these two different jargons together, these poets came up with their own way of uh, sort of sanctification of the war, making it a holy defense. Or the very notion of literary commitment, which was something that if you look at the works of the leftist and secular poets of the pre-revolutionary period, you see that they are the pioneering voices, in fact, in formulating this concept. And then we have Muhammad Reza Hakimi, who comes a year before the revolution and also after the revolution with this book called Literature and Commitment in Islam. So suddenly everything is co-opted and, you know, Islam is, itself is co-opted. And we have a new phenomenon. But this new phenomenon didn't come out of nowhere. It had its roots in the past. So I tried to show these connections with the hope of not stopping by the revolution or as a point of, as the only point of reference. 
Thank you. So uh, early in the book, you set out to create an objective canon of revolutionary and post-revolutionary poets, official poets. Can you tell us what objective criteria you used to make the selection the most important official poets of this period? Yeah, I would say that was really the most challenging part of the book to come up with, you know, a number of poets and then to say that these were the pioneering voices. For that, I had to go back to what has been produced by the Islamic Republic itself and what has been said and argued, and uh, as well as, you know, the school textbooks and use my own lived experience in Iran, you know, the collective memory of many interviews that actually I had, formal and informal conversations with the post-revolutionary generations. What did they remember? What was part of the collective memory. So um, all of this really brought me to those names in the first place. And I really used one work, if I want to say, that really helped me to identify these poets was the work of Muhammad Qazim Qazimi, who you know well, he's an Afghan immigrant poet in Iran, has become actually one of the most important voices of, um, you know, state-sponsored narrative of literature but at the same time, in fact, because I think his immigrant background helped him to be more objective about these poets rather than just promoting them or praising them just because the system wanted to hear these names. In terms of the objective criteria, it was really important to me the role these poets played. So I come up with two different generations. The generation that wrote before the revolution, and the, they were already part of the literary milieu before the revolution happened. Poets such as Tahir Safarzadeh, Musavi Gamalabi, Ali Mahalem, Sabzawari, and so forth. And then the second generation, whose poetic output and career really starts by the revolution, and they become known as poets after the revolution. And, you know, they went through different processes as poets. The way that Tahir Safarzadeh or Musavi Garmaludi approached poetry or their relationship with the leftist poets was extremely intriguing to me. And then the way that they really shifted ideologically when the revolution happened. And then they slowly became part of the official jargon. How did that take place? And what was their role? They started taking up positions in the new government their very close ties and sometimes organizing role in uh, some of the most important institutional, cultural institutions of the government, such as Jose Honari. You know, when were they meeting, where and what was happening in those meetings? And then the way that their work was canonized in the school textbooks was also very important to me. The way that their work was published, how did they publish their work? who published their work. And then also, over time, what kind of relationship they had with the seat of power in particular. As you know, Khamenei has been, who's the current leader of the Islamic Republic, has been held, holding this annual poetry ceremonies. Many of these poets, in fact, became the poet laureates or Malakou Shuaraz of these nights. You know, Tabzabari, up until his death, he was sitting with one chair distance from Khamenei all these years. He was one of the 
major poets who actually wrote many revolutionary songs that even the opposition today remember those songs and, you know, they sing them. So you alluded earlier in one of the responses to an earlier question, but also just now, to your own personal experiences living in Iran, whether it was studying um, literature, moving to sociology, and also, you know, reading from your mother's library and so on. But you yourself were also a practicing poet who practiced the craft under these same institutions and in these same conditions. So how did that influence your perspective in writing this book? I think being a poet really helped me to sometimes read this poetry beyond ideology, even when it was ideological. So, for example, I have two chapters in the book on the war. One of them is about the other face of war. It's called In in which I try to show that some of these poets were still writing, you know, in service of ideology, but you see that sometimes they break away from the form, for example. And once this break happens, the content also shifts. And you see a different kind of reality of war coming out of these poems. Uh, Being a poet sometimes, you know, helped to understand this shift between the content and the form, because it happens to myself all the time. So I think being a poet really helped me to go beyond the ideological disagreements and divides. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about female poets Mm -hmm. as well. So um, it's very striking that in your, in the official canon and also in the canon that you construct yourself of the official poets, there's only one female poet, Tahere Safarzadeh, who you mentioned earlier as well. And yet among the younger generations, in my experience of Iran in the early 2000s at least, there were almost as many female poets as men. And in some circles, there were more. So how might we understand this shift? Yes. First of all, I have to uh, mention that this, the canon that I uh, shape, uh, for the sake of, you know, the space, I had to limit the work to the first two generations of this poetic canon. The ones who are already established, the ones whose work already being circulated and canonized in the textbooks and, you know, their name is, is already established as a poet in this official jargon. Now, in this circle, that is, as you mentioned, and very rightly so, is a very highly masculine canon, right? And there is only this one woman who stands out and really stands out in her, you know, poetics, especially, uh, is certainly Tahir Safar Zadeh, Now, I mentioned in the book, in fact, in the first chapter of the book, that there were other poets, women poets at this period, such as Sefideh Kashani, for example, Fatima Rakei. These were the poets who were writing, were active at the time, but none of them made their way to, for example, a school textbook. Their name was not as emphasized upon and highlighted as Tahira Safarza. And I think the reason for that from the fact that it has to do with the metaphors of this persona, her history in the pre-revolutionary period, and also her poetics. You're absolutely right. There are, in fact, many women poets who do not belong to this particular circle, and they're pretty well read and widely known. And But, you know, the subject of this book was those poets whose work has been endorsed and canonized by the government. 
That said, also, I have to add that in the past few years, especially, these poetry nights with Khamenei, we see that there is increasing number of women poets who are sitting in the back, you know, and reading about in praise of motherhood, in praise of like a pure love that, you know, is also uh, very much connected to this idea of being a devout woman. And I think their presence, and some of them are wonderful poets, still not as canonized and important as Tahir Safarzadeh, of course, but I think we might have in the future some of these female poets standing out, depending on whether or not this uh, invented tradition of poetry nights continue. And I think that's very much bound to the life of the Islamic Republic itself, you know, uh, whether or not it lasts in power. I think one reason that Tahir Safarzadeh became so important after the revolution was the fact that the system was trying to desperately, so trying to find a, an exemplary replacement for influential women poets such as whose work then was censored and banned after the revolution. Although her work is circulated, but some of her poems, especially during the first decade after the revolution, I think, was an important period for the purge and the censorship and poetry was one of them. And I think she was a perfect replacement for Farooq Farooqzad because she wrote in modern forms. Her poetics was interesting and avant-garde. In fact, in the book, I argue that she is the most avant-garde poet. She might be only one woman, but her voice really stands out. And she has really interesting poetic phases and, and that evolves over time. And her, her very close relationship with Quran, you know, she was the translator of Quran. And I think that was extremely important in shaping her persona, not only as a woman poet, but as someone who is extremely well-read and deeply engaged with the Islamic tradition. But very interestingly, doesn't write in rhyme and, you know, doesn't practice classical forms, which is something that is also very unique about her promotion and other poets such as Rakei and Koshani did and if you want to think about the aesthetics of poetry, according to the current leader of the Islamic Republic, he actually very openly always mentions this, that his preference, he likes classical poetry more than modern poems. He says it very clearly. Yeah, so I think that desperate need to replace Farooq Zad's influential and popular poetry pushed the system to, to choose to pick a woman who could speak to that sort of poetic persona that Fulgur Farouk had. Thank you. So, I mean, for me, your book is full of insights that I think tell us things about the Iranian revolution and the post-revolutionary state and society that other historians have missed until now. But for, for you, which do you think is the most important? Which are you most proud of making a contribution with? Thank you for, for saying that. I think the most important thing for me was to show how poetic legitimacy and political legitimacy go hand in hand. And I think that's really something unique about Iran. And also to show how poetry is still very much relevant to the society and, and to the power. And I really wanted, because, you know, this is in a way a foundational book in the sense that, as you mentioned, because of that much gap that existed in the field. I really was challenged by how to write a 
this one book that doesn't uh, is not going to answer all questions and probably creates more questions. How to write a book that opens up the field to further inquiry and research. One thing that, for example, I hope that I have shown in the book is that we are dealing with a romantic, with a form of romantic political thought in Iran, in which poetry is so deeply embedded in the political jargon that is almost impossible to separate it from it. Another thing that I hope I have done in the book that sort of would be useful to the readers is that interdisciplinary approach. You know, this is a work that is not just literary criticism, is not just sociology of literature or social history of literature. I really try to use different theories from different backgrounds, political science, for example, to show that, you know, to think about poetry we can think in between different disciplines. We don't have to just constantly go for a type of high literature and just stick to that. Uh, there, there are also other ways of looking at the revolution and, and the Iranian society than just, as much as I love the high literature myself. Yeah, I hope that, that the book offers that sort of sociological insight into understanding the role of poetry in the society and in shaping the revolution also. Absolutely. That was one of the main takeaways for me. And, and one of the things I appreciated most about it was this showing how poetry is so pervasive in the society, but also how this really rich millennium-long heritage of, of Persian poetry can be reinvented so almost completely and yet remain so much the same in so many ways to reflect a completely new political reality and to help birth it in a way, to help bring it about, bring it into being. So it's absolutely fascinating. It's a wonderful book. I did want to ask you very briefly, out of this official canon, which of these poets is your favorite personally? And well, that's one question, maybe a slightly separate question is, which one do you think will stand the test of time and remain in the Persian poetic canon, you know, 100 years from today? Perhaps those two names will be different, but perhaps they'll be the same. Yeah, um, I think if I want to choose one poet, that would be Tahira Safarzadeh. Not just because she's the only woman poet, but because I think her poetics is extremely fascinating and interesting and unique in many ways compared to other poets of this tradition. She has a very interesting life and very interesting background. And, you know, her shift towards the Islamic revolutionary ideology is a mystery to many of her close friends. She did an MFA in literature at the University of Iowa, traveled outside Iran, read world literature pretty widely. She was a bilingual poet. She published in both Persian and English. She, in fact, has a collection, which I briefly address in the book, introduced in the first chapter of the book called Red Umbrella. Um, I have a couple of favorites, but I would say this is my most favorite collection of hers. 13 poems only, and they're published in English by University of Iowa in 1969. Extremely fascinating poetry. Her relationship with the Quran, I have to say, is also, as a scholar who closely read and uh, engaged with the text, with the text as a form of poetry. 
her relationship with the Quranic text is also very interesting to me. She also taught in university, so she was a poet scholar very early on after the revolution. In fact, her promotion to become a professor at the university during those extensive purges itself is an interesting dichotomy, I think. So yeah, for those reasons, and for the sake of the, her poetry, I think her poetry is very interesting in terms of the avant-garde poetics and language and imagery that she uses. She doesn't exactly fit this category of a, as much as I really dislike this word, Islamist a female poet. She doesn't really fit that category if we read the variety of her works before and after the revolution. And I think she would be the one who would definitely remain her name. Pardone Milani has written about her, in fact, very beautifully. And another poet, which I don't think would last as much as Tahira Safarzadeh, but had been really popular among the mass, you know, uh, you see him being quoted quite often on Twitter on different occasions. Some people don't even know whose poetry is this. Some people write wrong name under the signature, like that this poet, for example, belongs to such and such, but it doesn't. So, but it, and it shows that you know the poetry has, has its own journey after the poet writes it. No matter who wrote it, if it speaks to people, it travels. Is Faisal Aminpour. He's interesting in the sense that he really was one of the, really maybe the only poet of this canon that managed to write fresh and contemporary in its true sense as else. He really revived that tradition after the revolution. And, you know, his, his shift and his disillusionment, I think, make him a very interesting case. Although he never really gave up on his ideology altogether, he always remained loyal to his, his beliefs. But I think the fact that he experienced the different forms, including Adal, makes him an interesting poet. And, you know, poets such as Simine Behbahani also praised his poetry but I, if I want to choose one between the two, then that definitely will be Taurus Well, Fatima, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've been speaking with author Fatima Shams about her book, A Revolution in Rhyme, Poetic Co-Option Under the Islamic Republic. And this has been Middle East Centre Book Talk. Thank you for listening and goodbye from Oxford.